Uh, my name's Matt Moran, if any of you don't know me. Happy August, everyone. We are winding down the book of Galatians, and we're coming to some of the concluding words of chapter 6. I'm excited about this passage. We started preparing to preach through Galatians as a pastoral team over a year ago, and I remember when we came to this chunk, uh, this was a passage that I wanted to preach. So I said even back then, 2013, this one's mine. Let me preach on this passage. So let's read it together, and then I'll pray. We'll ask the Spirit to help us to understand and respond to this. I'm, I'm preaching primarily today from verses 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. If anyone sows to the flesh, he will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due time we will reap if we do not lose heart. Please pray with me. Father, we believe that all of your scripture is profitable, and as we come now underneath this text, we need your spirit to help us to listen, to understand, to help our hearts to respond in obedience and faith and in joy. So I ask for that, please, all of that, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, was it worth it? Like, we use that phrase, worth it, all the time in life, don't we? And what we generally mean when we say that, was it worth it, is, did I get my money's worth? Did what I receive equal or exceed what I spent? Did I get good value? Was it worth it? And then the answer to that question can be very simple or it can be complicated depending on the scenario. For example, just about every month, Laurel and I go out on a date night, okay? We hire a babysitter, we pay her an hourly wage, and this is how it works. We put the kids to bed, then she comes over to the house, and while we go out for dinner or to see a movie, she sits on our couch and eats ice cream and watches TV. And for us, as parents of two little ones, Honestly, no price is too high. It's always worth it. But for her, it's definitely worth it. She's never actually had to care for our children. In fact, I'm not totally sure she would recognize them. <laughs> it's worth it, right, for both of us. But sometimes the scenario is a little bit more complicated because the question of worth it gets into different intangibles that kind of go beyond dollars and cents. For example... Did you know that the New York Yankees are paying Derek Jeter $12 million a year to play shortstop? Most people would say that $12 million is too much to pay someone to play baseball when they can't run or hit or throw. <laughs> but, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm, you, you all know I'm not originally from Boston, to earn my Bostonian stripes. I'm slowly working through a list called 101 Ways to Become a True Bostonian. And I just crossed gratuitously insult Derek Jeter off my list. So <laughs> now I'm going to go to Revere Beach after this and smoke a cigar and look for broken glass. <laughs> but the Jeter contract is tricky because there are intangible benefits. He has played for the team for like 20 years. He brings fans to the stadium, the Yankees sell his jersey. 
those things bring benefits to the Yankees that are a little bit difficult to calculate, but the team has decided that it's worth it for them to overpay a broken-down player. Or sometimes this question of worth it goes way beyond dollars and cents and makes that, that question seem almost crass. So, for example, let's say one of your best friends is getting married in another state, but you've been asked to be in the wedding. So you rent a tuxedo or you buy a dress, you need to buy plane tickets to fly out there, you might even need to buy, like, rent a car, rent a hotel room, all of that so that you can be part of this special day. But you love this person, right? So you do this and you can take part in that memorable day. So when you come back, if I said to you, was it worth it? You'd say, of course it was worth it. And then if I pressed you and made you add up all your expenses and was like, really? Was that wedding worth $200 an hour? You'd say, stop. There are some things that you can't put a price tag on. It was priceless, you'd say, hopefully. But the Apostle Paul is addressing this issue of worth it in the passage today. So let's get into this. He starts out in verse 7 with three very quick statements. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. The passage starts out with a warning. Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. We usually give warnings about things that we know are likely to happen. Things that we are concerned might happen and we want to avoid them. This is a warning because it's likely to happen. And Paul continues, God is not mocked. Generally, when we use the word mock, we are using that when we're talking about like verbally making fun of someone, directly, intentionally. But the reference here in this case is not necessarily talking about that. It's not necessarily referring to direct verbal abuse of God. The meaning could be translated, God cannot be outwitted. The verb for mock could be uh, translated translated as turn up the nose at, like you can't scorn God in that way. In other words, Paul's saying, don't fool yourself. You can't ignore God and think that you will outwit him and that there are no consequences. It's impossible to cheat him, impossible to ignore him forever. And he's saying, don't be deceived because that's our exact tendency. Then he goes on to say, for whatever a man sows, he will also reap. Paul is saying, I want to tell you Just so you know, don't be fooled. God is not mocked. Furthermore, whatever you put into the ground, that is going to come up. That's not sometimes true. That's always true. And we're not primarily a farming culture anymore, but the point still holds. This is called the law of returns, and Paul is making two points. First, that word whatever. Whatever you sow. For some of us, there's a very distinct difference between our expressed intentions and what we're actually sowing. Uh, Matt was just using the example of the apple tree in the children's sermon. No farmer would wish for an apple tree and plant corn, but we do that. We do that all the time. We express noble intentions, but the seed that we sow is actually totally different than what we say that we want to reap. In my mid-twenties, I remember being at a New Year's Eve party, and the whole year, it felt like the whole year was just spread out in front of me, like this incredible, vast expanse of possibility. And I knew, really, that I had wasted a ton of time in the previous year. But I was still looking at this new year with just incredible optimism. So as midnight drew near, I was looking 
at the possibility and sitting with my friends, and we were talking about our plans for the upcoming year. I decided that I was going to reveal this big ambition that I had. In front of all these friends, I said, I am going to write a book this year. That was my big dream. I wanted, I really wanted to reap a book. But what do you need to sow to reap a book? Words. Words on a page. Pages stacked upon pages. And where do those words come from? They come from discipline, commitment, focus, the willingness to park yourself in front of a desk day after day after day. And I wanted to reap a book, but what I sowed in that year was reruns on TV, half-price appetizers, NFL Sunday ticket. Like, that was basically... That was basically what I sowed that year. Every once in a while, I would go to a coffee house and just like noodle away on a pad. But at the end of the year, I did not reap a book. I reaped a half-filled notebook filled with unconnected ideas. And what I also reaped was regret and embarrassment every time one of my friends would ask me how my book was coming. The seeds that I sowed didn't correspond to what I said I wanted to reap. So Paul is saying, whatever you sow is coming back up. And then secondly, he's saying, you will reap. That day of reaping is coming, inevitably and inexorably. The idea that God is not mocked doesn't mean that he is vengeful or looking down upon you, ready to strike every time you slip up. The imagery of sowing and reaping is actually a lot more natural than that. I think Paul uses this image of sowing and reaping, seeds and sowing, getting at the idea that God has created the world with certain natural processes. The lag time between sowing and reaping is where a lot of us get deceived. So, for example, if eating a Big Mac gave you a same-day heart attack, no one would eat them. But if I ate multiple cheeseburgers day after day after day, I would experience the slow hardening of the arteries around my heart, would I not? I would reap eventual physical destruction. Nobody eats the instant heart attack food, but a lot of people eat the clogged arteries in a couple decades food, right? We get lost in the lag time and start thinking that in reality there's not really going to be any reaping. And that word that corruption that Paul uses, will reap corruption, can also be translated disintegration. It's a very similar concept. If I ate those cheeseburgers, I would eventually cause my body to fall apart. And that is what sin does. Sin puts a strain on you. It starts to put pressure on your moral life, your relational life. Sin makes things fall apart. It makes us reap corruption and disintegration. We don't reap the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talked about in chapter 5 if we don't sow in the field of the Spirit. So what that means is things like what we read, what we pursue, what we orient our lives by, this is all sowing to the Spirit, or it is sowing to the flesh. So there is an implicit issue of prioritization here. Time and energy should be going towards the things that are from the Spirit. But I think we often, very often, coddle our flesh. We treat it like it's very precious. We cuddle it and stroke it instead of crucifying it. And then we're surprised when we don't reap holiness. John Stott puts it like this, the harvest we reap depends on where and what we sow. This is a vitally important and much neglected principle of holiness. 
we are not the helpless victims of our nature, temperament, and environment. On the contrary, what we become depends largely on how we behave. Our character is shaped by our conduct. Okay, so far it would be easy, from what I've said, it would be easy for us to look at this text and say, yes, I get that. You reap what you sow. Whatever you put into the ground must come up. That's the whole book of Proverbs, right? And I see that. You could even say, I see that every day in my own life and in the people around me. Uh, I have a couple brothers that play college baseball, and um, one thing that they both pitch, and one thing that they'll say, at the end of the springtime, the pitchers will all sit in the bullpen, and each one of the season is winding down, and the the pitchers will will all talk about how this summer they're really going to get strong. This summer they're going to go home, they're going to lift weights, they're going to work out. And in the fall, they'll come back throwing gas. And my brothers say, every year, same sunken-chested puny kids, same pitiful fastballs. Because that lag time between May and September, people, we don't like to put the work in. So we know this, like, proverbially, right? We know it in our own culture. It's not even necessarily always explicitly Christian. We say, work hard and good things will come. Or we'll say, no pain, no gain. Or the lazy person never prospers, right? Okay, we get that. And Paul is telling us, we are all sowing, we need to sow to the Spirit. But, what I need you to see is that this proverbial wisdom is rooted in the whole flow of the book. Our opportunity, even just the very opportunity to sow to the Spirit, is rooted in the inversion of this principle that you reap what you sow. The inversion. Let me explain what I mean. Do you remember what your first apartment was like? Some of you actually might be living in it right now. Some of you, uh, yeah, some of you, that was a lot, that's a far-off memory, but some of you are in that place right now. That first apartment is like that big first step of independence. When you're not with your parents, you're not in a dorm room, it's your place. My first apartment was a second-story loft above a nightclub in downtown Buffalo. Whatever your image of a disgusting bachelor pad is, this was it. And my oldest friend and I were living there together. He was in grad school. I was finishing college. We would come and go completely independently of each other, always leaving behind a repulsive mess. After spending time in that apartment, by the summer of 2004, we were both going our separate ways. So we, were, we had made plans to move out. We had notified the landlord we were leaving in the begin, beginning of August. This was also the, the year that I began dating Laurel, my wife. And for that summer, I was basically oblivious to any other reality in the world other than this girl. So that year, at the end of July, she and I were sitting in a canoe somewhere in the middle of a river in Pennsylvania. You know how um, you do things when you're dating that you've never done before and will never do again? I don't remember the specifics of why canoeing seemed like so much fun or what we were talking about. But we were having a great time, and then my cell phone rang. It was my roommate. And he said, hey, where are you? And I was like, um, I'm with Laurel. What's going on? Our landlord's here. We need your stuff out. Where are you? And I said, wait, I thought that was in a couple days. No, it's now. Where are you? I was like, I'm in a boat. 
And slowly, painfully, I had to explain to my buddy that he was taking one for the team that day. I had sowed disorder, disarray, and disgust. And it wasn't his fault. But he was reaping it. He moved all my stuff out that day. And what we need to see is that is what Jesus did. The command to sow to the Spirit is not even a category without Jesus. That's why this command to holy living, to sowing to the Spirit, is at the back of the book of Galatians. Paul has already told us that we receive the Spirit when we heard the good news of the gospel and responded in faith. Jesus made all of that possible. Someone has already reaped what we sowed. We sowed sin. Jesus carried that, paid the consequences for that, atoned for that for all who believe. And it's only in light of that the only response can be to sow to the Spirit. Sowing to the Spirit is rooted in the doctrine of justification by faith, that Jesus justifies undeserving sinners. So verse 9 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Paul is saying, don't quit. Don't grow weary in doing good and sowing to the Spirit. And this is where the farming analogy starts to break down. Any good farmer, any good gardener even, knows that when you plant seeds, there is a set time when the harvest is supposed to come, right? There is a time that we can expect the harvest. It might not be perfectly precise and exact, but it is not unknown. It's year by year. It doesn't happen completely randomly. It happens at a predictable time. However, sowing to the Spirit is a little bit different. You can't count on it in the exact same way. We don't know exactly when we'll reap. And this is one of the challenges. Paul says, don't grow weary because in due time we're going to reap. That phrase, due time, refers to God's appointed time, God's set time, really a time that only God knows. We don't know the time of the harvest, and that's why persistence is required. Those of you with children know that we are always, with small children, talking in generalities about time. Kids are always demanding specifics, right? When are we going to the beach? In a little while. When are we going to the movies? In a little bit. That type of talk doesn't work for very long because most young kids only understand now, right? They need specifics. They need concrete. But Paul doesn't say now. He says in due time. Due time is a tough concept, even for adults. Due time isn't very precise. It's not very specific. And Paul is saying you need to keep working and you don't get to know. There is a when, there is a harvest, but it's at God's appointed time. That is tough. And here's how tough it actually is. Paul includes himself in the exhortation. I found this amazing when I was studying. This whole time he's been talking to them, these Galatians, and now he transitions and says, let us not grow weary in well-doing. He puts himself on the team and says, let us not grow weary. Paul, the apostle, got tired. There were times when his labors felt fruitless to him, when he was like, 
does this have any point and will it be rewarded? When am I going to see some results? When will a breakthrough happen in these areas where I'm sowing to the Spirit? The temptation to give up is universal regardless of age and maturity. And why is that? Well, ultimately, it's because as followers of Jesus, we are making disciples. We are both, being, we are both following Jesus and making, teaching others to follow him. We're not growing corn or making widgets. We are making disciples. We're sowing to the Spirit. And the harvest comes at a predictable time, and when you reap it, you take it to the market, you sell it, you make a profit, and you repeat the process next year, hopefully. But one of the frustrations of ministry, but, and this goes for pastors, it goes for teachers, it goes for parents, it goes for people in gospel community leadership or doing any type of small, small group, it goes for people who pray, it goes for those who are ministering to others one-on-one. One of the causes for weariness is that we can't calculate the outcomes of faithful labor. It feels very ambiguous to us. We can't calculate it, and we can't even always see it. The harvest time is not predictable. It's God's appointed time. But in the meantime, we have all these duties that need to be done. And those duties are numerous. They're arduous. They're constantly recurring. When the farmer sows seeds, it's not like some joke where he takes a big bag that he found at Lowe's and just goes out back and dumps it. What I know about going, sowing seeds, what well, little I know about sowing seeds, is that no, he goes out, he bends down, he puts the seed in the ground, he covers it up. It's painstaking, it's thorough, and each time you have to deliberately straighten your back and then bend over and do it all again. So what are these duties that we're called to? What are these ways that we need to be faithful in sowing to the Spirit? Well, this list is not comprehensive. But how about faithful, earnest, consistent prayer? How about diligent, studious love of Scripture? How about thoughtful, loving, discipline of your children? How about the intentional service and pursuit of your spouse? How about an intense and righteous pursuit of sexual integrity? How about every day working your job as best as you can? How about consistent, ongoing relationships with neighbors, friends, coworkers that don't know Jesus? How about gathering weekly with the family of God to worship him on Sunday? Those are duties that need to be done well. Some of them come naturally to us, others do not, okay? Some of, us we find, some of those we find immense joy in, others that is a process. And if I pressed you on them, I don't think many of you would say, well, I don't think those things are important. You know they are. This is the sowing to the Spirit that needs to be done. And those duties are not going away. So what do many of us do when we're faced with those duties? We get weary, right? We get good at excuses. We leave those duties half done. And our pursuit of those duties, our willingness to sow holiness, is very often half-hearted and lethargic. 
So how do we not grow weary? And this is where I want to move into application. How do we persist? How are we faithful in well-doing? In anything that's difficult, it's always, right, always a vision of the end result that's going to motivate us. And nothing makes us more tired, more weary, than this suspicion that all of our work is pointless, that it is to no end. We need to see clearly, we need clearly a vision for the glory of Jesus and the beauty of eternal life. Hebrews 12, 3 says that we should consider Jesus, consider, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. When we get tired, we look to Jesus. He endured. He continued. He was tired, but he did not stop. We look to Jesus, his victory, his resurrection, his triumph over sin and death and hell. I think Paul struggled with the same thing, this this reality that he had to look forward to the future. He talked about the struggles of his own ministry, and he said, he said ultimately, we do not lose heart. Though our, our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are, not, that are unseen are eternal. And this is where we need to ask ourselves continually, are we walking by faith, or are we walking only by what we see? The greatest cause of our weariness in well-doing is this deficiency of faith. It's the inability to see where we're headed, to understand where we're headed. And the greatest power to keep on sowing is this faith in who God is, what he has accomplished, and what awaits us. Nothing is better fitted or more appropriate to motivate us than the assurance that all our work will be crowned with success and that we will be rewarded for our well-doing. Our future hope has got to be what motivates our behavior today. We need a greater grasp of this reality that the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. Eternal life is not just some sort of mystical life that goes on forever. It is God's very own life, the life of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, graciously given to the children of God through faith in Jesus the Redeemer. It is the present possession of all who are redeemed, eternal life. That's future glory. There is a weight to that. I love that phrase that Paul says. There's a weight to that. We don't know exactly what that means, but he's saying there's a weight to that glory. It's real and it's substantial. Our future hope motivates our faithfulness. There is a real harvest. Hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 126 that Matt read before the service, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, will come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. That applies to us, but I believe it also refers to Jesus, who went out sowing seeds 
aware of the hardness of hearts. He went out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. But he ascended with shouts of joy, and he will bring a harvest with him. So what am I calling you today? to today? If you belong to Jesus, I am calling you to persistence. Keep on going, sowing to the Spirit. There is a harvest. Let's not grow weary in doing good. But this is not the persistence of just simple determination or self-generated willpower. It's the persistence that comes only to the justified through faith, through looking to Jesus, the most persistent and determined one of all. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask just for each one of us here in the sound of my voice, I pray that you would uh, grant to each one of us a holy determination to continue sowing to the Spirit in our individual and family and group contexts, that we would continue to sow faithfully with great hope of the glory that awaits us. I pray that for each one of us today. Amen.